Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. There's war raging in Ukraine, a general feeling that a second U.S. civil war is possible, given the divisiveness of U.S. American politics. Children being murdered in schools is just something we have to accept as a free society, according to 44% of Republicans in a June 5th CBS News poll. It's got to feel like deja vu to Claudia Castro Luna, a war refugee from El Salvador's civil war in the 1980s. The correspondences are eerie in her new book, Cipotla Under the Moon, published by Tiachucha Press. Claudia is a former poet laureate of the state of Washington, and Cipotla Under the Moon is described, quote, as a testament to the men, women, and children who bet on life at all costs and now make their home in another language, in another place where they, by their presence, change every day. Claudia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. My pleasure entirely and my honor. Cipotla, tell us about their word. Um, well, Cipota is a Salvadoran to the core word. That means girl. Cipota. Um, Cipota. Mm -hmm. You don't you don't find that in Cuba or Mexico or no. No, it's, it's <laughs> a Salvadoran thing. Salvi. This is Salvi speak all the Sal way. Salvi speak. Yeah. Well, how does that cipota? I've I don't even know that. I never knew that word before the book. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean it's in El Salvador, nobody says that is a niña. Niña, I mean, we all know the word niña, but um, we say cipota or cipote. And I really wanted the title of the book to cue immediately to any Central American that this was a book about that region. Hondurans also use the word cipote and cipota. It already positions the book in a socio historical and also a geographical space. And I really, I really wanted that. So Cipota means girl under the moon. Cipota bajo la luna is the name of a blog I started about, I don't know, eons ago. And I've written into it intermittently over the years. So the title of the book is essentially the title of the blog, but in, um, in English, because the blog's title is Cipota bajo la luna. And it's such a great word. It's such a great word, cipota. Such a it's such a good mouthfeel, and just you know, it's just a great word. Yeah, this is a very personal book. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's the most personal of my of my books, actually. Yeah. Why it's, now? Why why now? The time to dig into that. You know, that's an interesting question, Paul. I. This was, I wrote the book largely during the pandemic, although many of those poems have been written over the years and never published. So we all had those moments during the pandemic where we had time in our hands, right? And I started looking at this unpublished work and realized that there was an arc there and there was a, there was a book there. Um, there, were, there were things missing uh, for it to be a full collection. So I started writing into those missing spaces. And, um, and that's how the book came about. I mean, it was a lot of a lot of those poems were written, you know, like I said, over the years and just collecting in a drawer. 
That was going to be my next question. Uh, some of the poems go back to 2009, their earliest mm -hmm. publication. And the question I was going to ask was, how do you assemble a book? So you just told us it's uh, you see that these are poems, you have some time and you fill in the gaps by writing. Is there any is that, is that a typical way that you would write a book? No, but it makes me think because and I'm saying this because I know you're a fan of Denise Levertov and the way Denise Levertov wrote, which was, if I remember correctly, reading from her that she would write and edit and then just keep a pile of, you know, when the poem was done, it went into a pile and eventually there were enough poems there for a collection to come together. So I, I, that is not how I've written my other books at all. I think the other books have been more project driven. So I've had an idea and I've really written into that for a period of time. This, this poems are different. There's different styles and, and definitely different, just different expressions in these poems because they spread over such a long period of time. One of the poems toward the end of the book is the first poem that I ever published. I think that's the one you're referring to. Yeah, My Father's Garden is the first poem that I ever, one of my earliest efforts and the first one to be published. So, and it makes sense in the context of the book to have that poem there about, you know, again, about the war and my, and my dad and my father's return to El Salvador and, and, and he's got, my father's a huge garden gardening and just how plants in the natural world help have helped him, but also myself cope and deal and to an extent transcend the, you know, the, just the muck of the experience of having, of living with war, you know? Right. A very healing capacity, nature, obviously. And, you know, the, the background on writing that particular poem and publishing that may give us a sense of your evolution as a poet. Can you talk to that? Yeah, that poem. So I started writing, seriously, I started, I, I've been writing all my life. I think I was, I never wanted to take it up seriously. I always wrote poems. That was my default. Um, when I wrote, if anything came out of me, it showed up as a poem. Um, and there was a point, I was already a, a, a mom. I had my, I, I had two of my three kids already. And I realized I really needed to pursue this. So I started taking classes at a community college, at my local community college. So that poem was written in this community college classroom in Oakland. You know, I remember my husband said, reading this poem, I showed it to him and he said, he read it and then he looked up, he said, you wrote this? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I wrote it. You know, I mean, I don't know where it came from, but I did, I wrote it. The professor, I remember him asking me, um, he's handing back poems to everybody and then talking to me on the side and saying, Claudia, would you come to the open mic and read this poem at Laney College in Oakland? I never heard of an open mic. I had no idea what it was. And then he explained to me, you know, we get together once a month. It's an open reading to the college community and to the city in general. Anybody could come. We do it in the auditorium. It's super fun. You should come. I'd love for you to read this poem. And I want you to submit it to this publication. And so I agreed to the submission. I hesitated on the reading because it just seemed terrifying to me to read in public. But I went, I showed up, I was there. 
and you know it was it was like hugo house used to be where you stand up on this stage and you cannot see anybody everything is so dark and you have a light on your face i don't even know how i got through reading that poem but i did i i read the poem and it was such a it was such an incredible experience particularly to see it printed later in a magazine and they threw a, a small party publication party and i was there again and i read the poem and just that this experience then could be shared in this fashion with others was really amazing. But that that was my that has been my trajectory. I took a lot of community college classes, and eventually I realized this is not going to go away. And there isn't. I need a lot. I, I need a lot more than classes in the evening could give me. And so I gave up my job and went and did an MFA full time. Where gave, at Mills College. Right there in Oakland. Right there in Oakland. Yeah, I was by then. I I was a mom of three, and I couldn't I couldn't just travel, you know, to a different place to do an MFA. So I applied to three local MFAs and chose the one at Mills. Fantastic. Rather than have you read that poem, people can find it in the book. I think it was yeah. page one hundred eight. I'd like to go to a couple of other poems closer to the beginning of the book. There are a couple of brutal poems pages 24 and 25, the second of which is especially haunting. Um, mm -hmm. Would you care to read those? Yeah, yes, I can. Paul, I'm glad you chose that poem, the one that you're calling haunting. Yeah, it, you know, a lot of these poems and a lot of the experiences, especially at the front of the book where it's narrating the war in El Salvador, of course, are based on true experiences of mine and my family. So I, I have lived through, you know, the experiences that I narrate and, and I focus a lot of the writing of this book on children's experiences of war. And of course, then here I am as an adult writing about the impacts of war decades after one experiences them. So this one on page 24 is called, This Is Not a Poem. Guerra doesn't go away when the bullets stop, when the grenades go silent, when helicopters' blades no longer kick up the dust of innocence or presidential lies. There is no periphery to guerra. I'll say a giant cloaca propelling its stench on the ground, in the sky, underwater, subcutaneously clouding dreams, clogging guts, silencing tongues. Guerra does not know of lazy Sunday mornings or afternoon coffee breaks. It knows fear and death. I highly don't recommend it. And the next poem on page 25, is titled Dios Madre. Behind the counter, tending to a customer, he could see her, skipping and laughing in the middle of the street, children playing under the midday sun. Soon she would come in for her almuerzo, then head back out to school. He bent his head to count out change. That is when it happened. That is when bullets ripped his world in defense of nothing that matters. In a split second, children, dogs, birds, the ghosts who live in trees, even the gunmen dispersed, but she did not. 
She'd fallen under the old almendra tree, and for a second, nothing glittered, nothing, not even the sun. He was too late to her side. She still warm to the touch, her long hair wet with her own blood. Bring a healer, he screamed, a priest, a doctor, a witch, hire a mountain, hire a god, hire two, he begged, someone, please conjure a miracle. Sugarcane horizons trembled and the looming volcano stirred. Cupped in his hands, his 10-year-old daughter in her school uniform passed from smiling to hardened concrete. When she was under nine days of prayers and safely underground, he fled north, shoeless like rain. Somewhere along the road, he cut his head off to scream less. He carried cabeza and grief under his arm for miles, then joined a crowded bus, crossed a river, sat on the roof of a wagon train, crawled across the desert, his head facing upwards, strapped to his back, better not to see her in every girl he came across. He now lives in a place where people see him as he is not, call him names, not his own, illegal, they say, among other things. The man he was is no longer, but he's still a father, her father. Some days in the hustle to find food and shelter, a second passes and he doesn't, doesn't think of her. <sighs> it may not be seen as a compliment, but I get a nauseous feeling. When, when hearing hearing you read that poem, I, I mean, I think of my little girl. You know, I think I think about the same thing happening to me. So, the, and the, the the empathy is is yours. It's your talent, one of your talents as a poet, and um, oh, and and the touch of magical realism takes us out of this is an elegy. This is simply sentiment. It adds so much to the poem when you go into that moment of him. Take, cutting his head off and carrying it around. Can you tell us about the background of the poem and maybe how that surreal element comes into your work like that? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. You know, that's the true story. This is my father's town where he lives. The tree that I refer to is in front of his house. There were children playing on the street and a gang fight broke out and she was killed directly in front of my dad's house. I mean, you open the door and there's the tree and there she was in the middle of the street. And her family owned a little pulperia, a little store, una tiendita, you know, in the corner. So the father, uh, the, the, the way that the tiendita was, is set up, the counter of it faced is directly my father's house. So the father was tending the store. It's all a true story. And how I came about it is that I went to visit my dad and there was a photograph of a little girl in a frame, in a kind of a homemade frame. And then I went to my aunt's house, also in the same neighborhood, and there was the little frame with the girl. And this girl is not a relative. I never had seen her. So then I asked, who is that little girl who's in that frame? And, and then they told me the story. And my dad said that one of the first people who, who saw her was 
his wife when, you know, because they heard the gunshots and when they ran to the street and she opened the door, there was the girl. So that was just so, I mean, it's impactful in the poem, but just to hear them tell me this story and watch them break down because they knew this little girl. She lived in the neighborhood, you know, kids play in the street, right? Still to this day, as I did as a kid. So, um, because as I said at the beginning, I really wanted to um, focus on the on the lasting damage to to kids and also to the way in which they are the um, their suffering is really the kind of the un, unintended or maybe intended byproduct of these wars, right, and this violence. The poem also, and I make an effort. There are several poems in the book about fathers. Um, so I write, write about fathers and their relationship to children because I want to, to, I don't know, I think it's necessary to showcase different ways of parenting, you know, different ways that men could be fathers. I mean, this dad was heartbroken over the death of his child and he in fact fled, as the poem says, it's, it's true. He fled to the US. He could not imagine himself in this town without his kid. He was just so heartbroken from grief that he needed to be in a place where no one knew him in order to be able to carry on with his, with his day, uh, with his life. And so there are Latino men who are caring and loving, you know, of, of their kids, right? I mean, for me, it's really, I really want to focus on other ways of portraying masculinity as a way of, of um, thinking about it and you know just getting away from destructive stereotypes. The magical realism piece that you picked up on comes from reading the Popol Vuh. So I have read the Popol Vuh a few times and I have different versions of it. And there is one moment in the Popol Vuh where the twins go down to the underworld and they defy death. But what happens in one of those moments is that these are two twins that, that descend to, to the underworld. One of them is decapitated, but the other one figures out that they could fool death by giving him a head made out of a pumpkin. And pumpkins, of course, are so central to the diet, right, of the minds, corn, beans, and, and squash. And so they defy death with this ruse and they are able to go then back into the world and the world then begins. Once they have done and achieved this, the world begins. And for me, the father is going through hell. So the father is in an underworld and he's, and he's traveling in the same way in which these twins travel. And it is my wish for him that he find himself in a different place you know, in a different way where he could still hold his grief and move on with his life. So that's the piece when it, when it does enter into that moment where he cuts his head off and just moves through hell, right? Moves through that horrible experience of the desert and the trains and yeah, that's how that, that image comes about. Is it the Dennis Tedlock translation? Um, gosh, I, you know, I have several um, I, I think I, I don't know which one I was reading. I think I was reading an annotated version that my dad sent me from El Salvador. It's in Spanish, the one I have. So I have, you know, I have them in, in different, um, 
in translations, and I also have, have it in different versions in the Spanish. Fantastic. Somebody asked me recently, what books would I not part with? And I thought, wow, you know, that's a tough question. I don't like that question. But then I thought, you know, I would not part with my different versions of the Popol Vuh. Yeah, fantastic. The first poem that you read of those two is a prose poem. And there are a lot of prose poems in this book. What was the inspiration to start writing in that way? Well, I've been writing prose poems for a long, long time. Um, you know, I didn't know about prose poems. I thought all poems were open verse or, or, or verse, right? Um, metered uh, poems. When then when I got to Mills, I discovered that you could write prose poems. I read Baudelaire's poems, right? La Fleur du Mal, Las Flores del Mal, uh, prose poems, and the Haiban, Basha's Haiban, also prose poems. And so I was, I'm, I'm really drawn to them. I'm really drawn to them whenever the form, whenever the expression requires a form that can carry a story. And I like their propulsiveness because we're reading across as we read a regular text. So then the eye can move really quickly and in a very natural way across these lines that gives them, you know, yeah, gives them, propels them forward, right? There's a movement embedded in the form that I really like. And so this book has a lot of prose poems for sure. Yeah, very effective too. When I read the poem on page 60, Monsignor Romero, I mm -hmm. think of Archbishop Oscar Romero and the Father Bill in the poem, I think might be Father Bill Bixel, the activist Jesuit priest who served prison time for his nonviolent resistance against the School of the Americas, among other things. Father Bill, Bill Bixel, you're nodding your head. Yes, because that is Father Bill. I mean, Father Bill was a priest in a Berkeley church, St. Joseph the Worker, and actually was a Jewish friend of mine who said, you know, you should go check out St. Joseph the Worker because he played the trumpet there sometimes. And I thought, if this person who is Jewish is recommending this, this Catholic church, I'm gonna go check it out, you know? <laughs> so, so I went and I met Father Bill and I, then became uh, not so much, well, yes, I did become a member of the congregation. My father was a Marxist growing up, so there was no first communion for me when I was little, but it's something I always wanted to do. And as a, already as a mother, I only had my first kid, I went through the process of becoming Catholic. Um, and Father Bill was the person who was, you know, um, overseeing that, I mean, he was the main, he was the main priest at that parish, there were others. Um, and he was an incredible person. He was an incredible individual. When I walked into the church, the cross at the front of the altar was one that had been made in El Salvador in this particular style that's very Salvadoran from northern El Salvador, from a town called La Palma. And it's, it, and it's just, it's just so recognizable. When I saw it, I thought, Oh, I don't think my friend could read that, that know that. He just knew Father Bill. But the fact that that was there in that church and that was the cross that was, you know, um, on the altar, 
really drew me to it. And I knew there was a strong connection there beyond, beyond words. It was a, it was, I was meant to discover this place. So when Father Bill died, I was expecting, I was really, really pregnant. I must've been like eight months pregnant with my second child. And I could not stop crying. I just could not stop crying. They had a service at the Berkeley High School Auditorium, which is a huge auditorium. Nancy Pelosi was there. There were, because she is a rep from, from San Francisco and Father Bill was known in the whole Bay Area. So there were politicians, union leaders, regular people. I mean, it was just overwhelming. And I was sitting next to this woman and I kept on, I just wept. I wept for two days, you know, and I had turned around to this woman and I said, I'm sorry, I just don't know why I cannot stop crying. But I realized, as the poem says, that when Monsignor Romero died, I was in El Salvador. My family was in El Salvador, and there was really no room for grieving. There just wasn't, you know? It was too scary. It was too disruptive. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, and so then Father Bill, who, who was so close to El Salvador by the time when he died, he died typing his homily. He had a heart attack and collapsed onto his typewriter with Monsignor Romero's sermons on the side of the typewriter. And so when he died, it was like this flood of sorrow, just this gate that just went open. And I was both grieving Father Bill, but I was also grieving the grieving that I could not, I could not do all those decades earlier. So that's how that poem then comes about. Yeah. I think it's the Dogon who believe that the energy that propels the dead to the next realm is the energy that we give off in grieving through tears and sobbing and that kind of thing. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think there was a dry eye in that auditorium. There were hundreds of people there. And he was he was in an open casket, Father Bill, in a pine casket, a very simple, unvarnished pine casket. And the UFW had a guard that, that accompanied him all night. And he was in his leather jacket because sometimes he was, you know, in his garb. And sometimes when he was out there in the world, he wore this rebel's leather jacket and Father Bill shows up in my altar for Day of the Dead every November. And some years he faces us in his, you know, in his regalia. And some years he wears his, you know, I have a photo of him in his leather jacket. So sometimes he's in his rebel leather jacket with his aviator sunglasses, you know? So, yeah. Another prose poem, page 60. Would you care to read that now? Sure. Sure, yes, that is another prose poem. So this is titled Monsignor Romero. Today is Dia de los Muertos. I took the children to visit Father Bill. As usual, we shared chocolate and pan de muerto. We poured a lot of chocolate on his piece of bread and the ground around his grave swallowed greedily. We could have poured a river. When Father Bill died, each tear like no other, a river, 
I cried for each sister and brother, for the ones who were children and for the ones who were grown. I cried for me, I cried for you. I cried for my children, for things they know nothing about. War leaves no time for grieving. My right to mourn came with Father Bill's fall. At first glance, the US and El Salvador have nothing in common. Then time revealed the violence of poverty, the violence of drugs, the violence of guns, and like Monsignor said, the violence of love. <sighs> Bill Bixel. I interviewed him and I told him, you Jesuits are always getting into trouble. And he said, not enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the story with Father Bill is he was going to um, baptize my oldest kid. And all three of them were baptized at St. Joseph the Worker in Berkeley. But he had been arrested so many times at School of the Americas that he was made to serve time in prison as old as he was. And he, he had to go for a few months to prison. And it just so happened that the baptism was slated to happen while he was away in prison. And so another wonderful priest at the parish ended up doing uh, Amalia's um, baptism, officiating Amalia's baptism, but it was because he was in jail. And I could not believe that they would, they would demand that he, you know, serve time as old as he was and as you know already you know he was not in his prime when father bill served time and he probably had done it before i mean i'm sure he probably had been in prison for the same reason before oh yes and it you know it, it says something about a culture that would do something like that would put a man like that in prison for more than a, you know, a 24 hour 48 period it's the yeah. same kind of culture that would create a school of the Americas in the first place. Absolutely. And for yeah. those who don't know about it, Google that and, and see uh, what your tax dollars have been going for, which mm -hmm. is which is really horrible. Tell us about the use of Spanglish in the book. Is this this is a new development? Yeah, to include a lot of Spanish. Yeah, you know, my the publisher had remarked on that. He said these poems are Spanish shows up so much that it's like. Um, yeah, it's just part of the work. I mean, I think two things happen with these poems. Part of it, part, in some poems, I didn't even know when I crossed over to Spanish. I was writing and somehow there, there it was, you know. So to, to have changed them would have been a little betrayal of the poem itself. And so I left, left it like that. I also... I wanted both languages to exist on the same plane. So I didn't, I didn't want any kind of translation or italicizing the Spanish. I wanted them to be side by side because that's how they showed up, right? So yeah, because that's how they live in me, you know, that's how they exist in myself. I mean, the poems, poems are artifacts that come before language, right? They're forms that we, we give them form through language, but the poem is before any kind of word. So whether it's English or German or, I don't know, Mandarin that you end up putting on the page, that is the form of this. Pre-anagogic, I think, is the, is the term. Oh, what is the term? Pre-anagogic, I oh, think. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I'd have, I'd have, to, yeah. I'd have to validate that. I was going to use as an example of the Spanglish, a poem on page 89, 
another prose poem, Aguacatero. And uh-huh. um, not only English, Spanish, but uh, Nahuatl as well yeah. referenced in here. And, um, you know, I have, I have a poem with, with a reference to res dogs, dogs on the reservation. And uh, I'm reminded of that when I, when I read this poem or, or when you read it, when I hear it. And I'd love it if you could read that poem. Sure, <laughs> sure. Aguacatero, useful word, aguacatero, derived from the Nahuatl, aguacuacuatl, migrating to aguacate in Spanish, arriving at avocado in English. The generous trees flourish everywhere in El Salvador, edging country roads, spilling their laden branches over adobe fences. In Caliche, aguacatero means street dogs, the official title being Chucho Aguacatero. Chucho for dog, aguacatero meaning everywhere available, like the overripe fallen fruit they eat to stave off hunger. Aguacateros drought, starve, fuck, birth, and die on the streets, eyes preternaturally dialed to plea. Tengo hambre, I am hungry, would you feed me? Tengo sed, I am thirsty, would you quench my thirst? Estoy enfermo, I am sick, my stomach, my sockets, my soul ache, would you cure me? I am itchy, would you exterminate the ticks and fleas gnawing my fur down to raw flesh? Aguacatero means of the horde. It signifies lowest common denominator, but aguacateros are also noble, resilient, clever. The word agua runs through them, blood runs through them, and fire, flame, and red, the desire to live and prosper. Aguacateros resemble their two-legged compatriots. Aguacatero means plentiful, like the avocado trees lining roads, roads ahead that await us all, roads we must choose from to survive. Mamma mia, survival in, indeed, and you're excavating this experience that you didn't really get a time to grieve when you were 14 has caused you health issues. You were talking yesterday on the Zoom Use Poems for Peace. You know, you left Salvador at age 14, coming to the country that aided and abetted the side that has the overwhelming number of civilian killings and human rights. That's according to the UN Truth Commission on yes. El Salvador. Tell us about what writing a book like this allows you to accomplish in your own relationship with all of this uh, at some writing about this at some cost to your current health. Yes. Yes. True. <laughs> true. But you know, Paul, I think I'm glad I persevered with the poems and putting them together because because there isn't enough written about the experience of Salvadorans and why, why there's 4 million of us now in this country all has to do with that, with that which is in that book, with the war that the United States abated and essentially funded. I mean, I think that if the US had never been involved with, with the whole process, that war, which was, there were two sides, 80% of people in El Salvador, professionals, university students, agreed that there needed to be radical changes to healthcare, to education, to land reform. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, 
a frustration that had, you know, that that was that you could see the poverty, you could see the the poverty on the streets and how it affected us all. I think it could have been resolved so much quicker, and with far less uh, death than than it did had the U.S. never gotten involved. Because what what that did is that that refocused the struggle, which was one for human rights, essentially to one about the Cold War, because Reagan positioned the, and justified the aid by saying, you know, the Soviets are going to find fertile ground in Central America and the Caribbean, and we need to do everything possible not to have sub-Soviet uh, presence at our, at our, in, our, in, our, in our backyard, right? And the struggle was one for human rights. I mean, I was there. I could tell you, I had classmates that showed up with no shoes at school. My parents were both teachers, you know, struggling with things like healthcare, I mean, just basic human needs, right? And the horrible repression where people were being killed and jailed and murdered, and there were secret jails where people were disposed in ditches this before the war officially became the war. And so all of those human rights violations were ignored um, in favor of this of this rhetorical, you know, this this this. Yeah, it was a it was a a, a, a made up evidence to justify this rhetoric of the Cold War for the US. And it, so it spun everything out of control to the point that to me, the people leaving El Salvador this day to right now um, coming to the US are escaping the devastation that the war left. So for me, this war never ended. You know, my, my family was incredibly lucky to have been able to escape at the very early in the, the early years of the war. And, and even having escaped as early and unscathed as we were, we're still devastated. And I'm still, like you said, you know, suffering the, the, the repercussions of the war in my body, right? Um, and I mean, as I said yesterday, I've been hospitalized over writing these poems and working on other prose pieces about the war. So it's, it's really, really important that people understand how this war came about and the implications of the United States. And it's important for us Salvadorans in the US to have uh, some documentation of the war. And so that is really what drove me to, to write into, to write new poems. Like there's one poem titled Caravan, um, at the beginning pages of the book, which is about, about precisely that, you know, about how the bullets that were dislodged in 1982 are still finding it their way to find, you know, victims now, right, all these decades later. Um, so yeah, so that is a, was a, um, I think Hector Tovar has a statement in the back of the book that this is really part, is a documentation of this tragic history of El Salvador and Central America. And that, that was really what propelled me. Um, yeah. Has the war come home here? I think so, yes. The war came here in many ways. I mean, when in the 1980s and early 90s, I remember being at a party in, um, in LA. I was a young person and somebody said, you know, there, um, there were soldiers there. There were, there were people who fought the government side, right? And suddenly here we are finding ourselves on the same plane, 
that happened a lot. That happened a lot. So in that sense, the war has come home. But you know, also understanding the definition of war, as I as I do in the middle part of the book, where I draw a parallel between the war that we live, those kids in Uvalde, that's a war. That's devastation that happens in a war situation, right? And you know, how many killings of the people up in Buffalo? Same thing. I mean, it's we escape war only to find another war, right? And and I try, I work in this book to to bring to to show those parallels between you know the war in El Salvador that my family escaped, and then the war that I find myself living here in the US, or at the time where those poems came from. I mean, I think that my when I think about the Pacific Northwest and I feel very much at home here, and part of that is that I live with less stress. I live with less triggers. Um, you know, where I am right now, I'm surrounded by trees and that is just, I, my body rests from all the ways in which it's, it gets triggered back to those moments, you know, that I describe in that book. Yeah. Yeah. You've been out of the Poet Laureate position for over a year now. What do you think is the role of the poet in a materialistic society that doesn't value poets. I remember I put yes. a flyer that I was playing with a jazz trio at the Ethiopian restaurant in the mail room. And uh, you know, a, a neighbor who, you know, you see him in the parking garage or on the elevator or something. He said, oh, I missed your gig. I said, well, I got another one coming up. And I had the, the book launch at CNP Coffee House. And he came and didn't say much and left at the break. And I said, hey, how'd you like it? And he said, well, we, you know, we thought you were a musician. <laughs> we're going to hear you play. And when you started reading your, he didn't say, when you started reading your awful poems, so we knew we were in more, more than we bargained for. <laughs> but it's this poet, you know, poets, uh, they're like res dogs in this culture, right? Poets. Mm -hmm. What is mm -hmm. the role of the poet in a, in a materialistic society? You were poet laureate. Is that how it's supposed to be? Does the poet, is the poet laureate positions that we have around this country doing anything for poetry? Or um, is there a higher calling? Is there a higher role? I think the work that you're doing with this book, witnessing is the highest calling of the poet. Po poetry is news that stays news, Ezra Pound said. But tell us what you think about all that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think it is important. Um, I mean, for two things, I think that a good poem, as you know, for me, when people, when I was traveling around the state, people always, what is a poem? You know, what's a poem? I, I think that, I think that we, people, people sometimes put too much pressure on poetry to solve all their ills. I think that that is uh, an issue. I also think that poetry is the opposite, the complete opposite of the crappy news cycle that we're in, you know? I mean, in order to write a poem, you really have to consider and wait. You have to weigh each word. These are very considerate objects of writing, right? This, you don't write, if it's going to be a good poem and a solid poem, you have to think about it. You have to consider, not just say lies, you know, not just say and throw out things. So I think that it's important to have that that to show a different way of engaging with language. And I think that poets 
and sharing poetry in spaces that are unexpected, which a laureate often has to do, is, um, is a way of having moments to consider that. So I think that's important. I think it's important to, for those spaces to, to resist and to continue existing, even when, as you said before, you know, we get very small audiences, right? I mean, sometimes, you know, I've, I've, been, a, I've been a laureate, I've had four people, you know, I remember Port Angeles, a downpour. I mean, I have a miracle that four people even showed up. Um, and then again, there's other times when you have a lot more people come to a poetry reading, but both are equally necessary and important. And I mean, I think it's just really, it's necessary and important to be out there holding that space. Because the moment we give up to show a different way of being with language and the imagination, we, we have lost, it would be like, there be no flowers anymore in the world. You know, the, the Mayans and the indigenous people in Guatemala and El Salvador, poetry is floricanto, right? That is, the, that is the translation into Spanish, flower and song. And flowers, when you read the Popol Vuh, flowers are the highest expression of divinity. I mean, they were revered flowers, you know? It's not just, I mean, it really, it, it, we love them, of course, but there is such a reverence toward this, toward blooms, right? And I think having a world without poetry would be the equivalent of not, of not having flowers in the world, you know? And we would miss it tremendously if we were to disappear, those of us who write it <laughs> and our work. Right, so I mean, I say yes to poet laureates for holding for holding that space. I think of William Carlos Williams noting that uh, he was cheered, or I forget the word he used, that there were in, in Asphodel that greeny flower that there were flowers in hell. I just love <laughs> love that notion. Yeah. We're, we're about out of time. There were there were a few poems that I'd had written down on my notes that you might want to read. Clearest of nights page 106, The Way of Peace, page 86, May God Grant You a Good Day, page mm. 91, a poem about a practice in El Salvador that gives us a little sense of the culture. Maybe closing with that one would be best. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful uh, poem because that that is again where my dad lives, where my entire family, my entire family on the side of my dad has lived in the same neighborhood for generations. So when I think of El Salvador, I think of this neighborhood being described here. And there is a family in this neighborhood that has had a small relic of, of Jesus as a baby that was handed to them by, you know, during colonial times. It's a Spanish figurine. And it was given to them with the promise that they would keep their house open to any pilgrim that came to visit the baby Jesus and this baby Jesus grants um, favors. And I'd never seen this baby Jesus. So this one time I'm in El Salvador visiting my family and my cousin says, oh, I will take you. You've never seen this kid, this baby. And you know, whatever I go, I go over, I want to see, I want to learn everything, right? I mean, I'm relearning. And of course I see this, it's indescribable how beautiful this baby Jesus is. And people talk about it waking up. I mean, there's a lot of lore around this and granting, you know, 
um, wishes and so on. So that's what this story is about. Um, and the poem is titled, May God Grant You a Good Day. Roosters crow no matter noon or dawn, call and respond back and forth across yards. Sometimes a dog answers. The bicyclist making his way up the road announces fresh bread with a red horn mounted on rusty handlebars. He navigates puddles and swerves by stones while his crater sides wicker basket harbors rolls with oven heat nestled in their cottony hearts. These are the sounds of happiness. The guava tree brushes shadows onto the old adobe wall and a pair of doves coo to each other. Velvet songs of nothing rushed. Around the corner, an ancient wooden santo for generations held by the same family dispenses miracles year round. El Niño Chiquito, the enigma of his face framed by the worn luster of his silver crown, his infant body resigned to beaded satin and taffeta stitched by local women, their hands swollen from washing clothes, from washing corn with lime, from grinding grain into masa that will be tortillas by noon. In and out of needle, women darning life, the coming and going between. We love you, they tell the virgin. We love you, they tell her son. We love you, they don't tell each other. They don't tell each other. Instead, they mean when they say, buenos dias, le de Dios. Well, may God grant you a good life, Claudia Castro. We're going to delight to engage you here. Thank you for taking time out of your continuing to be a busy schedule post-Poet Laureate. It's a, it's a real honor and, and privilege to have this intimate access to your thoughts and process. Thank you. And thank you, Paul, for your close reading and just the astute way in which you paused at certain moments in this poems wondering, okay, I, I want to see how this came about. That is, I think that is the biggest joy a writer can have is for somebody to actually take time and read closely and wonder in the way in which you have. So I thank you for your time and effort. Vaya con Dios. Que vaya con Dios. <laughs> Hasta la próxima. Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the Eastern Missouri Breaks and Western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at CascadiaPoeticsLab.org.